So for years now, my wife has written Christmas cards for each Christmas season. We have pictures. She loves pictures. She puts pictures together, has a card, stuffs them in envelopes. We mail them to our friends and family. We hand them out to our friends at church. So we did that. She said, Brock, how many boxes are there? I was like, I don't know. So I went and looked. There's like 94 boxes in the library. So we brought 94 cards, stuffed them in every one of the boxes last week. And then somebody told me, you know that there are multiple people who use each box, right? And I said, no, I didn't. I mean, I shouldn't have known. It's not like there's a sign right next to it that says, please put names on everything you put in the boxes. There are multiple people who use each box. So there is a basket of Youngren Christmas cards on the chair just outside the library. And there is hopefully enough for one per family. If you have a family of eight and you take eight, are probably not enough numbers already, will definitely be not enough numbers. But I have no way to know who got one last week and who didn't because there were like 20 of them missing. But those 20 comprised like 57 different families. I just made that number up. I don't know if it's actually that number, but it's like 57 different families. I don't know which of those 57 families got a card. So if you didn't get a card, it is not that we don't care about you. It's that Brock can't read. So, the best laid plans of mice and men, right? We did what we thought was best. We did what we thought was going to work. And to use the old Yiddish proverb, man plans and God laughs. So, that is not the only time that we see Plans just going awry. Like we put together what we think will work, and then it just, for some reason, doesn't. We see it happen in battles. In fact, it happens so often in war that there's a phrase for it that says, no plan survives first contact. As soon as something happens, your plan is shot to pieces. And you have to go with it on the fly to figure out what now? What do we do when our plans don't work? What do we do when we have no idea what's going on? What do we do? Well, today's set of passages says, but God. And if we, if we boil it all down to a phrase, and consolidate and condense different things. As Chris and I sat in my office trying to put these all together, we said, which of these can be grouped together? And then what phrase would work for that whole grouping? But God, he just works differently than we do. The first passage we're going to look at, it's called the pericope. It's a word that you should know because it's a wonderful word. It's spelled like pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. But it's pericope. You have to put the emphasis on the right syllable. Otherwise, it, you will spell peri or pericope. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look first at verses 26 to 31. We're going to actually look at the ones before that later, but we're going to start with this. And Paul writes this, inspired by the Spirit. For consider your calling, brothers... And that means brothers and sisters. It's a general term for people who are followers of Jesus in this case. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we have here? And how does that match up with plans? See, see, it matches with plans because God had a plan. It was a bad plan. I mean, from our perspective, from humans looking at it, we would look at it and say, that is a bad plan. That's not gonna work. You're choosing all the wrong things at all the wrong times. And you know what God says to that? I know. The plan is that the plan looks like it couldn't work, but the plan does work. Okay, so I'm ahead of myself. The plan of God does work, but how? How does it get there and what does that mean and how does it matter to us? Let's start at the beginning of this passage. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. There's God's choice. But God chose, and three times that happens. Three is a good number for me, by the way. Four, not so much. But three works really well, right? I don't know why. It just feels like a day that, that my finger is there. I don't know. Anyway, irrelevant. There are three different places where it says God chose. And so that but God correlates to each one of these. But God chose what is foolish. But God chose what is weak. But God chose what is low and despised. That was God's choice for his plan. His plan from the beginning of creation was to choose foolish, weak, unknown, despised things to do something. Now, there's two things he's doing here. One is on a meta-narrative level, which is sort of an overarching, long story way. The other is on a personal level, which is each person, us in this case, in our point in time. Our story begins when we're born and ends when we die. I, I realize we could say our uh, heritage lives on, but our part of the story ends when we die. That's the personal component. There's also the meta-narrative component where God has started this at the beginning. He's working this story all the way to the end. So let's look first at the meta-narrative aspect of it. What is the foolish choice that God has in his plan on a meta-narrative perspective? God chose to send his son to earth as a mortal The immortal God came to earth as a mortal, but not to live a powerful, winning, respectable life, but really to live a life that gets killed like a murderer in the end. That's a 
foolish plan. It's not a foolish plan. So, so don't, don't mishear that. But from our perspective, as we were choosing plans, that would be a foolish plan. What's the plan? The plan is to lose. The plan is to have my best warrior die, my only warrior die. That's the plan. It's not a very good plan from our perspective. So then what do we do with that? We have to recognize something. Go back to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. Here's what Isaiah writes. It's God speaking, and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. The Lord, right? All caps, Yahweh, his personal name. God personally saying, Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than ours and his ways higher than ours. Now let's just think about that in perspective for just a moment. How high is the heavens? How high above the earth? Let's say... For the sake of ease, five miles, 26,000 feet. How high am I? Five foot 10. So I'm five foot 10-ish. God's, and that's, I'm, my ways are at five foot 10. God's ways are at 26,000 feet. Can you see five foot 10 from 26,000 feet? They're not even comparable. One is like, a line across your paper versus the entire paper. So when God says his ways are higher than ours, he's using a, a method of measuring that is so vastly different that you don't even see this one down here. It's, it's, it, it, you can't even tell it's there because of how big his is. It's like when, you, when you're running numbers on Microsoft Excel and one of the numbers is so big that it makes all the other numbers look little. We have a, Julie and I have a, have a, a, a document that has keywords on it for the services. So as we put together preaching things, she can see what the keyword of a certain sermon is going to be. So she chooses music accordingly because she doesn't just choose music that fits with the sermon on accident. Sometimes it could be, but usually not on accident. It's because there's, there's some guiding there. So, okay, here's where we're going. And then she chooses things wonderfully that mix well, right? I ran the numbers so I could see what was all going on in one. And there's one word in there. The word is Christ. That happened so frequently in the keywords that I used that I had to remove it so I could see where the other ones were. Because it was this high on my chart and everything else was only this high. And I was actually trying to see how much difference there was in the other ones. And that's what we see here. God is so much higher that we don't even see us. We can't tell the difference between the smart human and the stupid human. The smart plan and the bad plan. Because God is so much bigger. So when we step back and we call God's plan foolish, that in and of itself is inane. It's crazy. But we look at it, we say that couldn't possibly work, but it did. Because God was actually trying to accomplish a different purpose than we thought he was trying to accomplish. We thought he was sending the Messiah, the humans did, so that he could come, overthrow Rome, rule. And instead he sent his son so that he could die to Rome and beat Satan, the actual enemy. And when the actual battle that we couldn't even tell was going on, he wins that one 
so that he gets real victory, not temporary victory. See, see, the Jews wanted him to come in. And, and, and if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and move, or chapter 1 and move back to verse 21, he says this. Well, it's starting in verse 20. It, it, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the person who's really intelligent? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God's taken what we know and he's turned it on its head. If you really want to see how Jesus does that, read Matthew chapter 5. And then continue with six and seven. It's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all about things working exactly opposite of what our world says. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who don't get for themselves. It's backwards. But where are those people? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It pleased God through the folly of the death and resurrection of Jesus to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks, Greeks seek wisdom. But we, so he's juxtaposing these two groups. The Jews look for signs of God's working, meaning overthrowing the rulers. The Greeks look for wisdom debaters, right? That's why he mentioned debaters early in this. Those are the two things they're looking for, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews because it's opposite of what they think can happen and foolishness to the Gentiles because they think it's dumb. It's impossible. It's asinine, which means... Stupid to the point of silly. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. Foolishness. Why? Because in God's wisdom, we can't even get it. We can't even begin to understand it. It's like, it's like we go to God and we say, God, we want your best plan. As long as it's the same as my plan. As long as I can come up with the plan, we want your best plan. And God says, no, I'll just give my best plan. It's higher than your thoughts. It's like going to a doctor and wanting the doctor to tell you what you want to hear. Right? You're going in, McKenna's going to have foot surgery and she's gonna, she goes to the doctor and it's like going to the doctor the very first time, like her foot's not working. We didn't really want the doctor to say, oh yeah, her foot's not working. What do you think is wrong? Doc, I'm coming to you because I have no idea what's wrong. It's not moving and articulating. It's stuck. Oh, yeah. How do you think we should fix that? We go to him because he's smarter in, in, this, in this realm. We go to the doctor because she knows what's going on and can take a large understanding and say, here's how you fix your issue, which is not something that I would have known. Turns out she had two bones growing together. I never would have guessed that. I didn't know two bones grew together that weren't supposed to. But we go to the doctor so that they have a greater understanding, a better understanding than us, which gives us a plan that going into it, we maybe would have thought would have been a foolish plan. Turns out that's the right plan. And that's what we go to them for. That's what we have here. God made a foolish plan. It was the right plan. It was the best plan. But to us, it seemed like a foolish plan. He sent his son as a mortal. We have this idea that not only did Jesus come, but he came as a baby, just a wee little baby. Like that's way down in the totem pole, right? The step from adult human to baby human is this big compared to the step of God 
to human. That was the humbling thing that God did was to choose to become a human. How he came as a human? Baby, teenager, 20-year-old, 80-year-old. Didn't matter compared to how much it was a step down that he chose to become a human. Uh, We struggle with some of that because we like to think that we're, you know, pretty good. You know, I, I read this and I struggle a little bit. On the inside, I really wrestle with this because Paul says not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Hey, guys, Corinthians, remember, you were the not smart, powerless, irrelevant people that we came and brought the gospel to. I don't like to hear that. I don't think any of us likes to hear that. We like to think that we're intelligent, capable, in positions to make a difference. But instead, God says, eh, Brock, when I thought about choosing the foolish ones, you were the first one that came to mind. When I thought about choosing the ones who, who, were, who were the wrong choices according to the world, you came to mind. And think about it in terms of, of a sports team. If you are a player on a team sport and you want to show that you're the best player in the world, who do you surround yourself with? Poor players. Because if you can win having poor players on your team, everyone knows just how great you are. In a weird sense, that's what Jesus did. He says, hey, I'm going to win the battle. And in fact, you go to Revelation and Jesus and his army show up to battle Satan and his army and Jesus opens his mouth and out of his mouth comes a sword, kills all of his enemies. His people, his army did nothing. He didn't need them there. They weren't necessary to the winning of the day. He was the one who won the day. So he puts himself in a position where He uses irrelevant people. Now, that doesn't mean we're not important. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about us. We are important to him. He does care about us. But we are not necessary to the fulfillment of his plan. He doesn't need me to stand here doing this. He could have used anyone he wanted to. He chose me. He chose to have me here and chose me through you to have me here. That is true but he did not need me. He could have done it without me. I I like playing chess with Josiah. Okay, I I actually used to like playing chess with Josiah. Now I lose and it's not as fun as winning. And so we don't, you know, we still play, but he's gotten a lot better. But when he was little, my rule to him was, I am going to try my best to beat you every single time. But you can take any piece of mine or number of pieces of mine off the board to start the game, except the king. Had to leave the king. Take anything else you want. He took rooks. He took knights. You know what the hardest one for me to win with was? The loss of all my pawns. You think that shouldn't be the case because you got all these powerful chess pieces ready to take over the board. Pawns are your way to not have them all die. So all of a sudden he took my pawns and I thought, oh, this is simple. And then I realized everything is dying. Everywhere I go, he can kill my piece. And I need my pawns. But if I lose a pawn in a normal game of chess, eh, it's not the end of the world. It's not the most valuable piece, but they're important. And that's us. 
We are not the valuable knights, rooks, queen, bishop pieces. We're certainly not the king on the board. We're pawns. But pawns are important. And God uses them to accomplish his will. But he doesn't need us. That's why Paul writes here, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about or to bring to nothing things that are, so that the purpose of all of these but gods, but God chose what is foolish, but God chose what is weak, but God chose the low and despised, the things that were irrelevant, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not one human will ever be able to stand before God and say, aren't you so glad that I did that for you? I'm pretty important. There's no boasting to God because it was his foolish plan to use his foolish people to accomplish his amazing purpose. He chose what is foolish, me. He chose what is weak, me. He chose, it's a strange way to say it. He says he chose the low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. It's it's an odd way to say it. Basically, he took the unknown, those who were just barely scraping by, who lived scandalous lives, to topple everything that the world had to offer. And so back to the meta-narrative again. I almost said metaphysical. Back to the meta-narrative again. What is that meta-narrative movement that would have been this low and despised? It was Jesus. Think about it for just a moment. We, We think about the story of Jesus. We understand he came as a baby, born of a virgin, came as a baby, it's odd, whatever. But he was born into a society where having children out of wedlock made you dead certainly made you hated if you weren't killed. You were an outcast. For how long? Forever. So here was Jesus, maybe trying, maybe not, we're not told, maybe trying to tell people, look, I I wasn't born because my mother was unfaithful. I was born because my mother was faithful. But I'm not Joseph's child. Who's going to believe that? It took an angel showing up to Joseph for Joseph to believe it. So Jesus didn't just live a a sort of unknown in the background life. He lived a life that was surrounded by scandal. The most scandalous person, wrongly scandalous person that could possibly have been. He did nothing wrong. He was born exactly the way that he was supposed to be. Paul writes, that, that sin is handed down generation to generation through the Father. So God cut that part out. This isn't a men are more important than women moment. That's not what it's saying. But that's where the responsibility of sin is. Men, it lies on us. When we stand before God, we will stand before God for our sins. We will stand before God for the way that we interacted as a person and the responsibility of our families. And if we failed in any one of those, we will know. We'll still be loved. If we believe in Jesus, we'll still be in heaven. But we'll be responsible for every one of those. The weight of sin is passed down generation to generation through the Father. So God cut the Father out and had just Mary involved. 
so that the, the transmission of sin wasn't there. So Jesus was born without sin, but that looks really bad to the world. And God said, I know because I have a plan that's bigger and different than you understood. From 1 Corinthians, if we jump forward about, uh, talking about the, the birth of Jesus, if we jump forward about 40 years, we'll see Peter in Acts chapter 10, talking to Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion who was a God-fearer. And what that means was he was not a Jew, but he trusted the God of the Jews, okay? Not a Jew. He was a Roman. Trusted the God of the Jews, who was Yahweh. He had never heard of Jesus. Only Yahweh. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, the story has come about where, where Peter's asleep and God sends a sheet down filled with animals that weren't supposed to be touched. And God says, hey, Peter, get up, kill them, eat. Peter says, no, God, I won't do that. This is a test. And those are unclean. And God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. So he takes the sheet up to heaven. Brings it back down again. Same animals. And God says, hey, Peter, get up. Kill and eat. And Peter goes, no, God, this is still a test. See, I, fail. I didn't fail the first time. I won't fail the second time. I won't kill those. Those are unclean. God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Takes the sheep back up to heaven. Brings it down a third time. And he says, hey, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, no, God, this is a threefold test and I'm not going to fail. Peter has a weird set of threes. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him if he loved him. And now three times he has this sheet come down. Maybe it takes him a moment to catch on to things. I don't know. Not God. Don't know. And God says, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, won't do it. And God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. He wakes up. All of a sudden... So knock at the door. I don't know if they actually knocked on doors back then, but let's pretend there was a knock on the door. And guys are like, hey, Peter, we're looking for you. Okay. We got Cornelius. He's not a Jew. He wants to hear the gospel because he was told in a dream that you had the message that would give him life. And Peter goes, oh, it wasn't really about animals. Acts 10, 28 says this. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I'm, when I'm set for, I came without objection. This is what he says to Cornelius. God called Peter to do something totally outside of what Peter expected to happen. Now, don't take this too far. There's all sorts of things we could come up with here. But what we have is God paradigm shifting on Peter and saying, no, you thought I meant this. And really the Jews were supposed to, to take the message of Yahweh to the nations around them and they were to become Jews. They weren't, the Jews were not to become others. The others were to become Jews. There was proselytizing there too. That's what was supposed to happen. Didn't happen. And they instead said, oh, we got to make sure we don't become like them. So keep them all away. Never talk to them. That's bad, right? Don't do it. And God shows him, no, I have a different plan. And that plan now means you and, all, you, you and I all can sit here having heard the gospel 
having had a chance to believe in Jesus as Gentile Greek-ish people that otherwise would not have had the gospel come to us. God had a different plan. Here's how God works differently than what we expect. There's one less of those. We're just going to walk through these quickly. We're not even going to read every one. They're listed on the, the list of scriptures in your bulletins. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I know you're too old to have kids and you don't have any, but I'm going to make you into a great nation with lots of kids. Abraham's like, mm, I think he means that I'm supposed to sleep with my servant or my wife's servant. And so he does. And he has a child, not what God meant. So Abraham and his wife have exactly one child. So you go from generation zero with two people to generation one now has three people. His son has exactly one, two sons. And now you've got these problems. God's plan promise of many children is going nowhere very quickly. But God has a different plan and he brings about a great nation. From this great nation, they end up in slavery in Egypt. So Moses says, I'm going to free my people. And he finds a, an Egyptian who is mistreating a Jew. So he kills the Egyptian. That wasn't the plan. Pharaoh runs him off. That's Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. He comes back and he does help his people escape in a totally different way. That is not Moses' way. It's God's way. Go to 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. Samuel's anointing the next king. The next king is David. But David is the very littlest of all of his brothers. The last one in this line. He sees the first. Samuel does. He's like, oh, that guy, he'd be a good king. Big, strong, tough people listen to him. And God's like, not the one I want. So then the next comes and he thinks the same thing. And the next and the next. Finally, he says, do you have any more sons to Jesse? And Jesse goes, well, there's one, but he's out dealing with the sheep, which is like the worst position to have. You couldn't possibly want that one. And that's the one God says, that's the one I want. Not the plan you would have expected. If you backed up and you looked at David's history, his heritage, you'd find out his great-grandmother was not even Jewish. Her name was Ruth. Not Jewish, but the great-grandmother of David. Move on to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Habakkuk says to God, hey God, there's all sorts of injustice. And God says, I have a plan, but you would never believe it if I told you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Magi show up looking for the king in Jerusalem where the king is supposed to be, but Jesus is not in Jerusalem. He's an out-of-the-way, unknown little place, lying in a manger, now maybe in a house, as they're looking for the king of kings in the most obscure place. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Jesus tells Peter that he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be killed. And Peter says, never, Lord, will we let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is the plan. And if you try to fight this plan, you're fighting for Satan. I must die. Foolish to Peter. 
Acts chapter nine, verses 13 to 16, the Holy Spirit comes to Ananias and he says, hey, Ananias, this is not Ananias and Sapphira, this is the other Ananias. And he says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go and heal a guy. His name is Saul and he's gonna be a messenger of mine to the world. And Ananias is like, great God, but um, this is the guy who's killing everyone. I don't think this is a good plan. And God says, no, this is a good plan. Go and do it. All of those things, God working in totally different ways than the people expected God to work. Because God's plan sometimes looks foolish to us. Even in the midst of our own personal lives because we don't understand where it's going. We don't even understand what it's trying to accomplish all the time. And we think, how could God possibly be doing whatever? He's supposed to be doing this. God is accomplishing what he intends to accomplish. And it might feel foolish to us, but God works differently than we do. But God is still with us, even in that moment where we feel like we don't know what's going on. We don't know which direction's up and what's happening. When we don't understand the plan, God is both with us and God is working differently than we could expect. He hasn't left us. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't forgotten how to accomplish his purpose. He is in control. He is the one who will receive glory and honor, right? Ephesians 1, 6, 12, and 14. We talked about it a month or a month and a half ago. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. It can't be given to you and I because you and I are the foolish, weak, unknown ones. He's the one who used the foolish, weak, unknown ones to accomplish the changing of the world through his son. He is with us and he is working differently. Part of that comes down to sharing the gospel with people. Part of our component of this. Tonight at the drive through nativity, the live nativity, we'll have an opportunity for them to hear aspects or all of the gospel, depending on where they're listening to, depending on what their, their ears are hearing, but they'll get, they'll get the opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear the salvific opportunity that they have in Christ Jesus. Invite your friends. Bring a neighbor. There are all sorts of people in this town who need that message. Bring somebody. Hear the gospel. Pray for them. Watch the Holy Spirit work as God works out a plan that we couldn't have imagined if we had to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. We pray, Father, that we would do that. Lord, we know that, Lord, even just for me, I would not have chosen the live nativity to be on a week where like half the people are sick but you know what you're doing. You know what you're about. You know how to bring you the most honor and glory. Allow us as people, Lord, to remember that. Allow me to remember that. We thank you for loving us, and we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and lives, and it's in your holy and amazing name we pray. Amen.